It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel Cunliffe, and on today's New Statesman podcast, I'm talking to political correspondent for Times Radio, Charlotte Ivers, who also has a column in the Sunday Times and, of course, in the New Statesman. And we are assessing Richie Sunak's first month in office and whether Matt Hancock has done enough to rehabilitate himself. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're a month and a weekend into Rishi Sunak being Prime Minister. It does feel like it was another era, the Liz Trust chaos. Take us through what's happened since then. What have some highlights been for you? Well, it's been a pretty active month for Rishi Sunak. Let's start with his awesome statement, because I think that was always going to be the big crunch point, wasn't it? If he couldn't get that right, basically the markets and his own MPs would have had him out within days. That was always the point where we were looking at a lot of political pressure on him. And we knew that he was going to try and raise taxes. We knew that he was going to make massive cuts to public expenditure. And actually, he's managed to do that without disturbing the markets and also without disturbing his own MPs, basically through messing around with thresholds when it came to taxes and then delaying when it came to public spending cuts. So he's escaped the major problem that was coming down the tracks. But then you look at everything else that has happened and you do have all of these fault lines, these signs of weakness that have emerged. So, of course, he lost Gavin Williamson, one of his key ministers, a key ally over bullying allegations. We've got similar allegations against Dominic Raab, who's currently being investigated. And then as well, you've just got this slow attrition of little battles that his own MPs are fighting with him. So look at, for example, the planning bill. Now you had MPs trying to remove the government's target for house building that's centrally imposed. The government has now had to yield on that, pulling the bill completely And then as we speak, there is currently a little bit of a ruckus going on over onshore wind. You've got 30 MPs, including Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, not staying quiet on the back benches, who have all put in an amendment on the government's bill to bring in onshore wind, which currently they are banning. So it is a much more steady ship than it was under Liz Truss. That is definitely true. But you do just see everywhere you look, these little fault lines and these little bits of attrition that are happening from the back benches. And many of them are not happy and they're going to keep causing trouble. The planning bill, I think, is really interesting because you've got that one 
one rebellion that you talked about, the NIMBY MPs. I can't remember who's leading it, but I know Teresa Villiers is very much involved. And I always remember her because she's the constituency across from where my parents live, who is very averse to the idea that people like me might be able to move into the area. She's leading with some others this idea that it should be even easier for local residents to block new housing developments. But you've also got the counter-revolution, which is what the onshore wind is, which is almost a a, a YIMBY rebellion, which is some Conservative MPs going, no, we're not going to let the NIMBYs define us. We want to push the government on this. So this is almost the reincarnation of Liz Truss's crusade against the anti-growth coalition. And they've both got some really quite vocal MPs who are quite happy to be very rebellious against their leader. They have indeed. And it does go fairly high up in terms of that rebellion. So you've got Michael Gove in the cabinet making it quite clear that he is in favour of onshore wind. Wouldn't quite say it to be just on the grounds that you actually have that caveat in place from this amendment that onshore wind will only be put in place where people support it in their local area. And actually, I was looking at some polling on onshore wind earlier today. It's really popular. 74% of the population like it. 72% of Conservative voters like it. Whether they like it in their own backyard is always a very different question. But this is, in theory, something the government could do without much stress. And actually, listening to the Business Secretary, Grant Shapps, on the radio this morning, he was saying that this is something that Rishi Sunak has talked about favourably before. Sometimes he's been against it. But it didn't sound like something Shapps was very adverse to. It sounded like this might be something the government could give way on pretty easily. Fundamentally, Rishi Sunak's problem is that he inherited countless existential crises and the, the key one as you said is it was getting the budget through and managing to to get an incredibly difficult fiscal announcement through without the government toppling which in fairness to, to him and Jeremy Hunt they did that doesn't leave a huge amount of political capital free for anything else and so you are getting rows over planning an onshore wind, also rows over the migration crisis. And you talked about losing Gavin Williamson fairly early on. He wasn't really a minister for anything. <laughs> minister, A minister for, let's put you in the cabinet or we can keep an eye on you without giving you a real job. But obviously, be- before the calls for Gavin Williamson to resign came, you had the calls for the Home Secretary to resign. And those sort of went quiet for a bit. That The problems haven't gone away at all. In fact, we've got another week full of headlines about what's going on with migration and the facilities for processing asylum seekers and all of that, she's still there. How much of a headache is that for him? I think what is more of a headache at the moment is the general intractability of the problem. There is no solution to the small boats problem that the government has been able to come up with at all. And we know that there are things that they won't consider. They won't consider opening up safe legal routes. That seems to be falling completely out of line with their plans and their general ideology for what they want to do. Rishi Sunak has reopened our negotiations with the French over what can be done at the Calais side of this. But frankly, those have not proved particularly fruitful negotiations in the past when it comes to actually stopping the boats. The numbers just keep going up. Up and the government just keep 
failing to do anything about it despite talking tough on it all of the time and in a way they are creating a rod for their own backs there because they g up their base by talking about what a massive problem it is and how much they want to fix it and then they don't fix it they actually allow those numbers to creep up and up and you're completely right to say there's pressure on Suella Braverman the Home Secretary pressure on Robert Jemrick the Immigration Minister you had Philip Hollibone a very vocal backbench MP calling on him to resign in the House of Commons the other day because migrants have been placed in MPs constituencies in hotels without consulting the local MP and they may face legal challenges on that front as well as legal challenges over conditions at Manston over their general processing abilities and it's just coming in every direction for them when it comes to this particular issue and there was a story on the front page of the Times a couple of days ago after we saw those record net migration figures it's about half a million it's usually a couple of hundred thousand lower than that during which it said that the government was considering trying to stop students from coming here from overseas, mm. trying to stop students coming if they're not coming to one of the, say, I don't know, top 20 universities in the country. And that, again, exposed this massive split within the Conservative Party because you had those who just want to see that number fall, come what may, and then you had those who actually view education in this country as a really strong export and actually don't think students should be involved in those numbers at all because of the economic benefits that they bring because of the soft power benefits that they bring. Oh and also the polling even when you poll voters even people who are averse to immigration in general are quite happy with the idea of international students coming here paying really high fees subsidising domestic students and then going back that doesn't seem to bother people as much as the political effort to curtail them would imply. Yes, that's completely true. And another one of the reasons why those numbers are so high this year is because we have taken a large number of refugees from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, and also from Hong Kong. So those numbers are probably going to go back down again next year. I'm sure the government will laud that as a huge success, despite the fact that actually the schemes to resettle people from those countries have, again, polled extremely well. So essentially, the government has a very easy way of getting numbers down when it comes to immigration that people don't really mind about. But when it comes to the types of immigration that do poll badly, they basically have no solution for that. It's quite chaotic. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
one of the things you are a columnist for the Sunday Times, you're also a, a columnist for us. And one of the things that you often write for us is you give us an insight into the mood of backbench conservative MPs taking their temperature with what's going on. And there has been a, a quite a lot of focus on backbench MPs or on sort of junior ministers in the last week because more of them than were expected are deciding that they're not sure they want to be MPs at all. I think we've had 10 in the last week announced that they were asked to confirm whether or not they wanted to run in the next election and more than expected are saying that they don't, including a few that are quite surprising. What's going on there? I think there's a lot of things going on. So there is a deadline coming up. Conservative headquarters have said to MPs, you need to tell us by the 1st of December whether you're going to stand again. And Let's just start with that, because why now? Because there are some people who are saying, understandably, the next election is not going to be for another year and a half, two years. Do they really have to give MPs this deadline artificially now? I think they've been a bit spooked by the fact that Labour are very much on it with their selections. They are selecting across the country at the moment. Labour HQ seems to be doing a pretty good job at getting candidates who broadly ideologically align with Keir Starmer into place and it all looks like a pretty efficient operation with the usual local disputes that you always get with this type of thing. But it's a well-oiled machine at the moment and my sense of it is that Conservative campaign headquarters have thought, oh no, we'd better get on it as well. And also if their candidates are out and about leafleting and being present in the constituency, we probably need someone facing up to them. So that's why we're seeing this happening now. And then in terms of why you're seeing MPs step down, in some cases, it's very simple. Their seats are either disappearing or their majorities are being dramatically decreased. So it's a little bit of jumping before you're pushed. In other cases, it is this sense that they are going to go into opposition. If you think about coming to the end of your career, maybe you've only got five years or so left before retirement age, you'd probably be thinking, am I really going to sit the next four or so years of that out in opposition? It doesn't look particularly appealing. And then there's the fact that, frankly... There has been a lot of misery on the backbenches on both sides of the house, actually, over the last few years. It's been a pretty politically miserable time. People feel like they can't get things done because there's so much instability. And also, as well, the hours have been particularly long because there's been so much legislation going through. It's just this sense that people have had enough. It was really odd, actually. I'm speaking to a former MP from 20 or so years ago, and he kept asking me if I wanted to be an MP the other day. And I kept saying, no, they're all so miserable. This is, it's so unappealing to me because I speak to these people and they tell me how awful it is. And this person was absolutely shocked by this. They said, I had a great time. I think all my colleagues had a great time. And I think something has moved in terms of how enjoyable and how fulfilling it is to be an MP recently. And I think that's down to a lot of things, probably a bit of social media, probably a bit of the fact that there has just been so much political chaos. And yeah, a lot of them just want to get out. I'm with you 100%. I would not be an MP for any party, regardless of what you paid me to do it. I think it's an utterly thankless task. And we have interviewed Brian Class on this podcast earlier, who talks about how that in itself is a problem, because it means the kind of candidates you get are the ones who desperately want power, regardless of how miserable they might be and all the nice normal people, not that we're normal, but all the nice normal people get weeded out. Two of the ones that have been particularly high profile, Chloe Smith, who was a minister under David Cameron, and was very briefly a Secretary of State for Work and Pensions under Liz Truss. She's uh, just 40, I think, and she has said she's standing down in the next election. And also 
Deanna Davison, she's only 29, and she's really interesting because she was symbolic of the Boris Johnson Red Wall wave of Tory MPs because she was young, she's northern, she's in Bishop Auckland, which is a seat that has never been conservative until her. She's got this sort of kind of, in a way, progressive, bouncy energy, although she is also a presenter on GB News and quite Brexity in, in lots of ways. But she was sort of seen as, oh yeah, this is the new generation of Conservative MPs that Boris Johnson has managed to tap into, bring into Parliament. And it will be very much changing the kind of makeup of the Conservative Party in Parliament. She's got a majority of 8,000, 8, I think. 8, I believe. I think actually the boundary changes do benefit her as well. So that is likely to go up for whoever takes that seat. Yeah, and she just decided basically that she's had enough. And when I chatted to her last year, when she was very positive about being an MP, one of the things we talked about is whether after COVID it was the the Boris effect was still was still relevant and she said that she hadn't spoken to anyone in her constituency who'd said I've never voted Conservative before I've always voted for Labour but I gave Boris a try in 2019 and it was a terrible mistake and I'm never doing it again and she hadn't had that reaction on the doorstep and I can't help wondering if possibly in the last year maybe that's changed or maybe now that Boris Johnson isn't there all of the scandals have meant that the dynamics in those seats are no longer particularly helpful to the wave that came in in 2019. I think that's probably very true. And it's not just 2019 MPs, it's not just Red Wall MPs who are nervous. You've actually got these MPs in these monumentally safe seats in the southeast of England or in the southwest of England, actually, which have always been Conservative MPs sitting on 15 to 20,000 majorities who are starting to panic because you're seeing incredible movements in some of those seats. Look at Dominic Raab's seat, for example, in Isha and Walton. That used to be a very safe Conservative seat. And due to a combination of people moving out of London, people in their 20s and 30s and taking their Labour voting habits with them, and also due to extremely effective tactical voting, pulling everyone towards the Liberal Democrats, that has basically eliminated the safeness of that seat. And he is constantly under threat of losing that seat. And actually, it is more tactical voting. What you see when you look at the numbers is a complete collapse of the Labour vote as people realise, oh, if we pile behind the Lib Dems, we can get rid of of the Conservative candidate here. And so you've got nerves all across traditional Conservative seats as well, looking at the opinion polling that just puts them online for an absolute wipeout. And it's unlikely that we'll see quite the scale of wipeout that some of those polls predict. The polls tend to get closer during an election campaign as people rally behind one of the two major parties. Things will only get more tricky for Keir Starmer as we get closer to an election, that's for sure. But nonetheless, it is not going to be a particularly pretty experience for the Conservatives at the next election. And a lot of the conversations I have at the moment with Conservative MPs are them trying to parse through. Do they want to be in opposition? Many of them have never experienced opposition. And they do know from speaking to their older colleagues, it's not particularly pleasant. It's particularly not pleasant if there are only about 100 and something of you and you're being walked all over by the government. Ask any Labour MP and they will certainly tell you that has been their experience. So in many cases, this is just people thinking we are at the end of something now and someone's got to rebuild it and most of them don't want it to be them. Not a particularly rosy picture for Rishi Sunak one month into office. Just before we go, 
We've got to talk about Matt Hancock. We've got to talk about the fact that he didn't win I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, but did get into the final and seemed to, in some ways, certainly in the minds of some people, re- redeem himself through eating all kinds of very strange and not particularly appetising food and messing around in tanks with squid and eels and all kinds of... I, you know what? I didn't watch any of it because no. that... Just even hearing you say that, I just thought... I've been tapping in and out of it occasionally, looking at what he did and going, no, I don't think I need to watch that. But nonetheless, millions of people did watch it. And you've got some thoughts on why and what that says about us and our sort of political memories. Mm. So I wrote my column for the Sunday Times about this this week because I've been on Question Time on Thursday night and... Fiona Bruce said, look, we've been getting loads of questions in about this. You could see in her eyes, she was like, oh, I don't really want to talk about Matt Hancock. But clearly we're going to have to talk about Matt Hancock. And she said to the audience, put your hand up if you think that Matt Hancock made a good choice going into the jungle. And it was about 40%, 50% who did. And then some people from the audience talked and they were pretty ambivalent, but they did say that he was starting to win them over and that his personality was coming across and that he'd faced a lot of questions from the other people in the camp. And you just got this sense that the tide was turning. And Fiona Bruce said that when she'd asked the same question a few weeks ago, it was complete consensus. No one thought this had been a good idea. So I wrote about that and about some polling I'd seen on a similar topic for the Sunday Times on Sunday and essentially said, I'm not sure I like this, to be honest. I don't think that this is the way to seek atonement. I think that you can be forgiven for things that you've done, but eating creepy crawlies isn't necessarily the way to do it. And that's my kind of gut instinct opinion on it. And then the top rated comments replying to this column were all saying, you got this wrong, Matt Hancock's great. And so I thought, oh, th- yes, the, this is even more than I thought, that people are coming around to Matt Hancock. I think he's done what he came there to do pretty successfully. Not sure he's won over his colleagues, to be honest. They are still pretty ambivalent about him. I think a lot of them, particularly the ones local to Hancock, have had a fair few letters from people saying, why is this man doing this while still being paid by the taxpayer to be an MP? So he might get a relatively frosty reception back in Parliament, I think. It just is this idea of redemption through reality TV is quite strange for me. Lots of people have drawn the comparison with John Profumo, who, when his political career ended in scandal and disgrace, spent decades in sort of public service working in a care home or cleaning and actually working through the redemption of earning forgiveness that way. It seems that it's a bit of a shortcut to go to a jungle in Australia and eat cow's anus and suddenly goes, there we go, I've done it. I can be reborn as something else. And yet that does, in a way, seem to be what what's happening. Do you think he'll go back to being an ordinary backbench MP? Can you see that? Because there are rumours that he's already thinking about the next reality TV show he can do. I, I don't know. I, I just can't imagine Matt Hancock quietly on the opposition backbenches. No, and his spokesman is still saying that he will not be quitting frontline politics, that he still wants to be a backbench MP. I don't think he's going to be a frontbench MP anytime soon, but he's got a pretty safe seat. So maybe if he wanted to survive the next election, he could end up in the shadow cabinet because there may not be that many MPs left to choose from. And he does have a fair bit of government experience. He's been in politics for a long time. He was an advisor to George Osborne way back in the sands of time. So he is certainly someone who has done a substantial time in Westminster. 
The short answer is we don't know. No one has been able to speak to him about his future plans for a few weeks. But the broad speculation in Westminster is that he wants to turn himself into a sort of Ed Balls figure, someone who is broadly considered quite lovable, quite fluffy by the public, does a few speaking gigs, appears on a few TV programmes and generally is around and about as a commentator. That seems to be where people think he's going. I tell you, I'd rather be on Strictly Come Dancing than eating spiders in That's Australia. That's what I thought. And also Strictly Come Dancing is friendlier and he, it worked, I suppose. So who knows? Who what knows? do we know? What do we know? <laughs> we are clearly not in the business of giving career advice to potentially former MPs. Charlotte Ivers, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guest, Charlotte Ivers. We're produced by Mae Robson and Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with a Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. 